X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. By the way, I say that each time fresh. We don't just have like a recording that says it. It might sound the same, but it's a little different each time. I could probably save time if we just recorded it once, but this keeps it more real. I am Jeff Smith, and I am from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, December the 8th. Today, back in the day, the United States of America joined the Second World War. As we remember from yesterday, back in the day, Pearl Harbor had been invaded on December 7th, and on December 8th, U.S. Congress declared war on the Empire of Japan. Jeanette Rankin was the only congressperson to vote against the war. Rankin, the congresswoman from Montana, did not believe in war or acting violently against people who were only temporary enemies. She also believed that FDR had provoked the Japanese to attack so the United States would join World War II. The days following Pearl Harbor, paranoia built up in Seattle. Blackouts occurred nightly. Radio signals were turned off. A mob of 2,000 people went into the city, smashing store windows and signs. Japanese-Americans in Seattle quickly became enemies of their communities. And during World War II, the United States would go on to imprison 120,000 Japanese-American human beings. And today, back in the day, December 8, 1981, John Lennon was murdered. One of the great musical geniuses of all time known for his work with the Beatles, was murdered outside the Dakota building in New York City by Mark David Chapman. Chapman disliked Lennon's lifestyle and publicity. Specifically, he didn't like Lennon's statement about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus. Hours before shooting John Lennon, Chapman had met him on the street, had him sign his copy of the album Double Fantasy. The famous photo of John Lennon nude embracing Yoko Ono was taken by Annie Leibovitz on that same day. I imagine myself wondering if something else had been said to Chapman that day, if anything else had happened how the 80s might have been different if John Lennon had stayed alive. We'll start with the Quick 6 News headlines and an interview with James Offsing, president of Portland Ford, with a focus on campaign finance reform. X-Ray. First up, it is today's Quick 6 local rundown. The cleanup agreement for the Swan Island Basin will be approved by the city council on Wednesday. They'll vote on a settlement with the EPA to distribute $3.6 million to the cleanup design of the Swan Island Basin. That's part of the larger push to clean up the Portland Harbor Superfund site. We've been talking about that for a long, long time, and not because it's super fun. The Superfund site is a polluted 10-mile stretch of Lambert River from between the Broadway Bridge to the Columbia. Over 100 years of development contaminated the sediment at the bottom of the river, includes a bunch of shipbuilding, a bunch of other effluent. The river is safe for recreation, but pollution means fishing in the area is risky. And that's because, you know, the sediment is at the bottom. The top is cleaner. The bottom is dirtier. And some of the fishies, they like the bottom. And they eat the stuff that's near the bottom. And that makes them not as good to eat themselves. The EPA approved the cleanup plan in 2016. It's a long time in the making. Not going to be cheap. Just designing a cleanup plan going to cost between 40 and $50 million. It's not just going down there with scrub brushes and scuba suits. Project's going to be paid for by the companies and other groups that potentially contributed to pollution. That includes the city of Portland. Funding coming from, for instance, Port of Portland, State of Oregon, Vigor Industries, and Daimler Trucks. Last Wednesday, Prosper Portland was added to that list. In the past, Prosper Portland had acquired properties that caused harbor pollution, like the rail yard they turned into the Pearl District. So Prosper Portland now covering 8% of the cleanup design costs. Entire cleanup process, get this, estimated to cost $3 billion with a B dollars. Might take 20 years to fully complete. It's time for your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 1,331 new coronavirus cases yesterday. It makes a total of 85,788 confirmed cases since the pandemic started. Officials also reported 12 new deaths. Of the 12 reported fatalities, 
At least seven had underlying conditions. The youngest of the deceased, however, was a 37-year-old Multnomah County man with no underlying conditions. There have been 1,045 deaths from the virus since March. Hospitalizations due to the virus are up as well. COVID cases climbed past 100 at the Troutdale Amazon Warehouse. It's one of the largest reported workplace outbreaks in Oregon, although an Amazon spokesperson says they have taken many steps to prevent transmission The virus has consistently spread since May. Unusually, entry-level warehouse workers are required to sign non-disclosure agreements about their work. So workers are effectively barred from talking to the media about working conditions, health, and safety. Nationwide, hundreds of Amazon employees have tested positive for coronavirus, and at least eight have died. And the Portland Trailblazers are going to close their practice space due to a COVID-19 outbreak. It's not clear if any players have tested positive. The practice space was closed just five days before the team's first preseason game. NBA players follow strict rules to avoid the virus. They're not allowed to go to bars, gyms, or social events with more than 15 people, and they're tested daily. The Blazers are coming from an exceptionally good off-season. They're scheduled to play the Sacramento Kings at the Moda Center on Friday, December 11th. Then the season will start on December 23rd with a game against the Utah Jazz. No fans will be allowed in the building for either game. In Washington, health officials report a total of 177,447 confirmed cases. There have been 2,925 deaths from the virus in Washington. Powell's has permanently closed its home and garden store. They actually announced the closing of that annex store last Thursday. Their three main stores, downtown Beaverton and Hawthorne, are open and persevering. The Home and Garden Store stocked books and trinkets devoted to domestic life. Emily Powell, owner and president, had this to say, and I'm quoting, it's very sad. Part of what we loved about that store and about book selling in general was it allowed us to be very specific to the Portland community. It allowed us to stretch ourselves and to sell something a little different. Despite the struggles, some projects are still pushing forward. Beaverton is building an art center, 15 million bucks, and is on track to finish by early year after next, 2022. Beaverton wants to be known by something other than Nike and strip malls, so the Patricia Research Center for the Arts is a part of a larger effort to expand the cultural life of Beaverton. No, that is not an oxymoron. Beaverton has cultural life, or at least they're working on it. They'll have a mid-sized theater for bands and plays, as well as an art gallery and an event space. There's been a depleted workforce due to COVID, but the construction project still on track. This project's going to be the first performing arts center of its kind built in the Portland metro area in more than 30 years. Clark County declares racism a public health issue. In Clark County, Washington, Latinos make up just 10% of the population, but account for nearly 30% of coronavirus cases. Clark County Council blamed one thing for that discrepancy, systemic racism. This act mirrors the CDC, whose employees declared racism to be a public health crisis back in July. Clark County Councilor Temple Lentz spearheaded the crisis effort. She expects the declaration will result in more health resources for communities of color. She said, quote, we have found that funders who support programs that address these issues in our community are more likely to fund at higher levels, organizations, and agencies that have made statements like these. But the crisis resolution didn't pass unanimously. Two counselors were absent from the vote. One of those counselors, Eileen Quiring, even stated this summer, I don't agree that we have systemic racism in this county, period. She also supported the Clark County Sheriff's decision to decorate patrol cars with Blue Lives Matter stickers. Still, the resolution passed. 
Currently, the county is working on developing videos and infographics in Spanish with the latest COVID information. A victory for trans advocates as the Supreme Court has rejected a bathroom policy appeal. Supreme Court declined on Monday to take up an appeal from Oregon parents who want transgender students in their school district to use locker rooms and bathrooms based on their sex assigned at birth. The decision by the Supreme Court not to review let stand a federal appeals court ruling that upheld the policy of permitting trans students to use the facilities that align with their gender identity. The case originated in Dallas, Oregon, an ag town 15 miles west of Salem. Dallas is also the hometown of the anti-vaxxer who just got his license suspended. 2017, parents of high school students sued over the Dallas School District's policy of allowing a transgender male student to use the boys' locker room and bathroom. At the time, the lawyer for the parents indicated that cisgender boys would be embarrassed and ashamed to change in the same room as someone who was assigned female at birth. 2018, a lower court refused to block the district's policy, and the Ninth Circuit affirmed that ruling earlier this year. And finally, some good news. Another round of $500 cash cards will be available for Oregonians under financial strain due to COVID-19. Portlanders can apply online to get one of the 4,000 prepaid debit cards from PDX Assist. Applicants must be 18 or older, live in Portland, have a household income at or below 80% of the median income. Just so you know, that's around 58,000 for a household of two and 73,000 for a household of four. After applying, a lottery will determine who receives the benefits. Applications will be open from 3 to 6 p.m. on Thursday, December 10th. These benefits are part of Portland's Household Assistance Program. The city estimates that the program will help more than 31,000 Portlanders by the end of the year. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we'll hear from James Offsink, president of Portland Forward. James talks with Jefferson Smith about the implications of Measure 107, which allows for laws limiting campaign contributions and expenses in the Oregon Constitution. James, thank you so much for being with us. How you doing? Oh, I'm great. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks for covering this uh, critically important topic. What a year for it. It is an, it was an interesting year at the ballot, given that in this year of horrors in so many, many ways, there were some significant accomplishments at the ballot. Portland Forward was, uh, in, was, was very active in at least two of those. Uh, and I should, by some disclosure, say that I was a, an early mover in the Portland Forward effort and involved in and involved in care about uh, both the police accountability effort and the campaign finance measure we're about to talk about. Uh, that disclosure aside, talk about what was at stake at, with Measure 107. Yeah, so Measure 107 was, is a statewide constitutional amendment, and we worked really hard with the legislature in 2019 to get it referred to the ballot. Uh, we had looked at potentially gathering the you know hundreds of thousands of signatures that are needed statewide to put a constitutional change on the ballot, um, but thankfully the legislature was really interested, noticed that this was a critical issue, and under the leadership of folks like Dan Rayfield and Jeff Golden down in Southern Oregon um, and Representative Salinas uh, in Lake, the Lake Oswego area w- came to the table and found that, yes, we need to, the legislature needs to be involved in putting this on the ballot. And so what this did, it's a little bit of a, a wonky thing, but basically Measure 107 updated Oregon's constitution to say explicitly that reasonable limits on campaign 
spending were legal in Oregon. Now, this may seem like a totally, you know, common sense, ridiculous thing that would need to be put into the Constitution, but there had been some disagreement over the last uh, few decades since the late 90s about whether Oregon's free speech uh, clause in our Constitution actually was so strong that it limited any kind of, uh, you know, limitations on campaign contributions. So it was really important to make it clear for our courts that, yes, in fact, the people of Oregon can put uh, limits on campaign uh, donations and spending in our state. And uh, thankfully, more than uh, 78% of Oregonians statewide did feel that that was important. Um, And we're really happy to see the people of Oregon resoundingly say, yes, we believe that big money uh, is a problem in our political system. And we're looking forward to crafting unique Oregon solutions to address it. With the move by the court, the Oregon Supreme Court, their ruling while this campaign was ramping up, explain that and what impact either that has on the decision that was confirmed by voters or what relevance the Supreme Court ruling still has. Yeah, so thanks for raising it. I kind of glossed over in my statement that the the landscape changed a little bit uh, in the middle of the campaign. So as I mentioned, the measure 107 was referred in uh, the 2019 legislature and it includes an, a few things. The most important being what, what I, what I mentioned that, uh, you know, Oregon, Oregonians can put in place limits, uh, reasonable limits. It does include some other things that also, uh, you know, make it clear that we can require disclosures uh, on advertisements, taglines, you know, paid for by Chevron Corporation or paid for by AFSCME uh, Labor Union. Um, so the, what happened this summer was there had also been a, court, a case wending its way through Oregon's court system since 2006. In 2016, the voters of Multnomah County passed Measure 26200, which uh, for local listeners might remember that it put into place some campaign contribution limits for Multnomah County offices. And that, oh, sorry, this is 26187. Uh, 26200 is a similar bill passed later for the city of Portland. But 26187 basically limited the amount that people could donate uh, to Multnomah County commissioners uh, running for office. And that was challenged because of this uh, discrepancy or uncertainty about the uh, Oregon Constitution. And it took a few years to get through the courts. And actually, the Supreme Court of Oregon, after several lower courts had made rulings about it, decided this summer, I believe um, in April or May, uh, that... In fact, they were revisiting the previous Oregon Supreme Court interpretation and saying that, yes, it was, in fact, legal um, in Oregon to put in place campaign contribution limits. So that removed much of the need uh, for Measure 107, which, you know, was kind of the campaign was ramping up at that point, as you mentioned. But it is always stronger to have the language in the Constitution because, 
should the you know winds of jurisprudence change down the line a, a supreme court could again reverse you know or, or update the decision that they made this year so it is better to clarify in oregon's constitution that yes in fact uh, oregonians can put in place limits on uh, big money in our political system and as i mentioned there were a few other things related to disclosures um that are, are now clarified in the constitution which is the best place for these uh you know rules about how we want our democracy to work to live so we're still really excited we were still very invested in passing measure 107 it would have been very bad um it would have really indicated some public shift on this issue had the you know voters of oregon decided oh no actually it's not necessary at this time so we're really thrilled to have such a you know resounding victory which we think sets us up really well to now tackle um, some of what I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, as far as the implications of, well, how, do, what, you know, statewide on races like governor and our state legislative seats, you know, what, what are the right limits or how do we go about um, starting to really chip away at the role of big money in our, in our democracy here in Oregon? Yeah, you had the you had the Rob Davis series in the Oregonian that won an award that was talking about how Oregon had lost its environmental legacy and that was directly linked to and could be obviously connected to our the unfettered flow of cash into uh, Oregon political campaigns, even to a greater degree than in most other states of the union. Uh, any other favorite or least favorite example of yours as to why you care about this, why you think it's important not only to have the Constitution allow for limits, but in fact, to move into the legislative session and get some actual meaningful limits in place. Yeah. Um, and thanks for uh, referencing Rob Davis's Polluted by Money series. If listeners have not uh, read that, that is, I think, one of the most powerful uh, journalistic takes on Oregon's democracy in the last, I don't know, five years or something. It's a really great series. It is really it really breaks it down and explains, you know, just what's at stake here. Um, but I think there are a number of things that are really um, important. I mean, to me, I guess I first got involved in working on money and politics. Uh, as many people say, it's not the most important issue, but it's the first issue because it is so hard to do. There, there's money, big money weighing in on the wrong side of so many issues. If that's environmental sustainability, if that's, uh, you know, racial and social justice, if it is, uh, you know, just having a streamlined government, there are, you know, big forces at play that are spending a lot of money um, that make it harder for everyday people to build up the democracy that we want. Some of these solutions, you know, if you talk about, uh, you know, universal health care, um, you know, and the folks at Healthcare for All of Oregon, for All Oregon, will talk about like when you talk to everyday people it is a common sense you know alternative but uh i mean it's a common sense uh solution that works in many developed countries in the world and some not so developed countries in the world and it can't work in here in the united states of america because it doesn't make enough money for insurers who have you know like well-paid lobbyists to convince legislators that and this is you know not just obviously in oregon but the problem uh, in our you know, national capital as well, 
or probably most importantly in our national capital. Um, and the people with money, whether that is individuals who are wealthy or um, corporations or other special interests that want to purchase a specific outcome in our government, today it, it looks like that money is very effectively spent. And that's a big problem if you care about regular people being able to make a difference in, in our communities through government. So this year we saw one of the most, ex well, the most expensive Oregon House race in history in uh, House District 32, the North Coast that includes Astoria and Tillamook and uh, all of Clatsop County and a little bit of Washington County um, and some of Tillamook County. And it, the, it's like $1.2 million on one side, or the, the Democrats spent $1.2 million on one side and lost the seat. Uh, I think the Democrats spent $1.5 million oh my and goodness. lost the seat, and the Republican, who was the uh, mayor of Tillamook, spent $1.2 million. Oh. Right. Thank you it's, for that correction. It's an insane amount of money that you can really money going to a lot of other things. It's an insane amount of money. Well, we've got to, though, talk about what happens next. Now you go before the legislature to try to push for limits. Now, the challenge has been, and I remember a conversation I had with former Governor Kitzhaber years ago when he said, uh, and I was a you know young idealistic person. I now hope that I'm an older idealistic person. And and I said, well, what about campaign finance reform? He said, well, the problem you got, Jeff, is you got to pass the system through the current system. you got to pass any change through the status quo. How do you do that, and what do you have hopes that you can get done in the legislative process, or do you have to go to the ballot? It's a good question, and it's one that we are, you know, currently struggling with. Uh, we are 100% willing to go to the ballot, and we think that this is an issue that many Oregonians care about. That's certainly what the polling says. It's what our individual conversations talking to Oregonians from across the state indicates. Um, nonetheless, we would really like to do it with the legislature's uh, assistance and cooperation, even though, you know, money does play a big role in the legislature. We, you can't understate the uh, representation that exists in the legislature. I mean, these folks do have a, a really good idea of how the money flows through the current system. They know about what it means to run campaigns and to talk to voters and to get your message across. And we think that that input is really valuable. We do think that the legislature will be motivated to do something on this issue. I don't think Republicans or Democrats want to have to raise and spend, you know, one point some odd millions of dollars. Um, additionally, I think both sides are a little bit scared of the current situation where a wealthy special interest, if that's, you know, Phil Knight dropping $3.5 million uh, in a governor's race, or if that's uh, our, our state's, you know, labor unions spending really heavily to try to flip swing seats, neither side, I think, is excited about the idea that someone who cares a lot about the results and has a lot of money could come in and single-handedly flip um, uh, the result. So I think with the voters speaking so loudly, uh, passing Measure 107 by more than 78%, passing in every single county in Oregon by more than 60%, um, I think the legislators see the writing is on the wall. Something is going to happen here, and I think they're going to want to get out ahead of it and be seen as being the proactive uh, 
you know, good people uh, doing the right thing. Is there a state. risk? Is there a risk, James, that we're talking to James Offsink with Portland Ford about campaign finance reform. Is there a risk that the legislature will pass something? I'm not going to go as far as to say it's campaign finance reform in name only, but that their incentive will be to, yes, get something passed so that you don't put something on the ballot or criticize or the press doesn't criticize them for being against democracy, but that they pass something that doesn't really shake up the current power structure all that much. Well, <laughs> um, I do think that that is a risk, uh, yes. And I think that we you know, have found some really good people in the legislature who have given this a lot of thought. Um, Who's helping? Also, uh, so including Representative uh, Andrea Salinas, who is really big on thinking about the kind of core principles going into, um, you know, regardless of what the specific you know dollar amount of the limits are, what's really important is how all of the regime works together. You know, you can't just tamp down really hard on, you know, individual limits to candidates, but then allow huge transfers between political committees, that kind of thing. Um, those mechanisms are really important, and Representative Salinas has given a lot of thought to it. Uh, Representative Rayfield uh, in Corvallis has also uh, been working on this issue for several years and I think is open to a lot of good ideas. Um, Senator Golden down in Ashland is also someone who has uh, been passionate about this issue for his entire time in the legislature and, in fact, chaired a Senate committee that was specifically on campaign finance that has a lot of background knowledge. Um, and I think that those folks can help lead within the legislature. I think you're right that there is a lot of risk that the existing power structure is going to do everything that it can to maintain power for as long as it can. But I, I also think that people see that the writing is on the wall. I mean, there there are, um, you know, decisions like uh, the AFSCME v, or Janice v. AFSCME decision that is going to you know, chip away at the amount of money that public employee unions have to spend, um, you know, directly giving to candidates. So let me let me call that out for a second. And then we're going to have to do this in a part two because we've got our chief international correspondent waiting for us. Uh, But what I think you just said was that uh, one of the blockades, in fact, FLCIO was a uh, wrote an amicus brief in favor of Citizens United, that uh, the pockets of money, public labor has been one of the primary pockets of money in American politics. And in Oregon, there have been uh, that OEA plus SEIU plus AFSCME plus AFT has outspent uh, corporate spending in several elections. Usually they outspent, you know, historically get outspent like five to one, but they have managed to beat them financially in in some elections. Uh, And what you just said is that the Janus case uh, or Janus case by the Supreme Court that makes it harder for public labor to uh, collect uh, to collect dues, to pay, to spend for political campaigns, that that might change the incentive of public labor to say, oh, maybe we should shake it up because the right-wing court's going to be shaking it up anyway. Well, um, I think that that's part of it. The um, Janus decision, I do think, is, is part of it. I think also as, I mean, unfortunately, uh, you know, public uh, labor, organized labor, you know, nationwide uh, continues to subside a little bit. And as the wealthiest corporate interests continue to get wealthier and wealthier. Um, I think that situation, if your plan is to spend money politically uh, to get, you know, progressive outcomes, I think 
you're starting to see, uh, you know, the, the folks on the other side are, are often going to have more money and are often going to be more motivated to spend it uh, to create outcomes in the opposite direction. So I, I think that there's a moment here where the legislature um, and traditional kind of power brokers, including uh, organized labor in Oregon, um, are willing to really come to the table and think about, well, what now that we're in a little bit of a transition period and it's unclear in the near future, like who, what entities are going to be spending the most money. I think everybody can kind of be brought to the table in this one risky moment where they might not be the winners um, from whatever comes out and, and try to really craft something that works for, for everyone. James Offsink, Portland Forward, thank you so much for your work. Thanks so much for being a friend of the show, and thanks so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Jefferson. Have a good day. Thanks to James for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for your subscription. Thank you for your review, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.